Hello and welcome back to another episode of LiveWire's Rules of Investing. I'm your new host, David Thornton. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to give a shout out to my predecessor, Patrick Polk. He really built this podcast from the ground up and has interviewed some of the biggest names in finance. Big shoes to fill, but I'm going to try my best. Thank you, Patrick. I can't wait to interview some great new guests, get some old names back on, and most importantly, provide you, our listeners, with the kinds of insights that will make you better investors. Today's guest, Lucas White, is the portfolio manager for the GMO Climate Change Strategy. Joining GMO in 2006, he was initially responsible for GMO's quality strategy. From there, he went to the growth and value strategy before ending up in the climate change strategy, an area very close to the heart of GMO's founder, Jeremy Grantham. We talk about the transition to renewables, their place in the broader energy market, and what these investments can provide to portfolios. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a LiveWire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a LiveWire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Lucas, welcome to Rules of Investing. It's great to have you on. Um, As you know, we were all locked and loaded to have this chat last week, Um, but of course, Murphy's Law reared its uh, ugly head in the form of technical difficulties, Um, but everything seems to be working now, which is great, Um, so appreciate your patience. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Um, So you joined GMO a couple of years before the GFC in 06, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Were you involved in the climate strategy from the beginning or did that come later? Uh, the climate strategy came later. So when I first joined GMO, uh, I was working on our quality strategy, which is uh, a strategy where we identify companies that uh, have some sort of sustainable competitive advantage that allows them to be uh, to generate excess profits for for many years or even decades at a time. So companies like Google, Microsoft, Procter and Gamble, Coke, Pepsi, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so th- that was really how I spent uh, my early years. Uh, at GMO. Uh, And then I got involved uh, around 2011 uh, in helping to launch our natural resources strategy. Uh, And our resources strategy is really uh, where our climate strategy came from. Uh, When we were looking at at the natural resources sector, we saw energy not just as fossil fuels, uh, but we we saw fossil fuels as the here and now, uh, but we saw the future uh, of energy as being clean energy. So we've always had uh, some level of clean energy exposure in our natural resources strategy. Uh, and the climate strategy, which we launched in 2017, is an evolution uh, of that work that we were doing and an expansion of the research that we were doing uh, in clean energy for that other strategy. GMO's founder, Jeremy Grantham, has been really at the forefront of the decarbonisation conversation for a long time. Um, what's been like having Jeremy um, at the helm? Seems he's really woven um, decarbonisation renewables into the fabric of GMO. Uh, yeah, Jeremy, he's a, you know, I'm not just saying this because he's my boss or, or maybe he's not my boss, but he's uh, the big guy at GMO. Uh, but Jeremy's a, a great guy. First of all, he's brilliant. He's super, super smart. I'm sure there are a lot of people uh, in our industry who have big reputations, but if you get to know them, they they kind of were in the right place at the right time uh, and and kind of aren't that all that impressive in real life. 
Jer- that's not Jeremy. Jeremy's super, <laughs> super impressive, super smart. Uh, he's in his 80s and he will uh, ping you with stats. He can do math calculations in his head like at mind-numbing speed. He's kind of like a calculator. Uh, and he's uh, has an ability to see things that other people don't see. They're, they're like people uh, didn't see the tech bubble for what it was. He sees through some of the noise and, and he's seen climate as a major issue to focus on uh, for many years before the rest of the industry started to paying, started paying attention to it as a major investment issue. Uh, so he has, it, it's really less about brute kind of intelligence, I think. It's more about an independence of thought. He is really smart, but that isn't what sets him apart. What sets him apart is his independence of thought. So to work with someone like that, who's really smart, thinks independently, is willing to do different things and go in different directions and kind of stake his uh, reputation on on things that sound a little weird or iffy to other people, uh, has been a great experience. And and obviously, it goes without saying, I've learned uh, a lot from him. When was it that Jeremy started to um, draw attention to the need for us to move away from from fossil fuels to renewables? Well, he's been a major climate activist for, I don't know, I, I will probably put out the wrong number, but let's say 15 to 20 years. So he has a foundation uh, of the vast majority of his wealth dedicated to the environment with a particular focus on climate as by far the biggest uh, environmental issue that we have globally. Um, so he's, he's been, uh, really involved for a long time. I remember sometime around 2010, 2011, Jeremy saying that climate, uh, is the, going to be the biggest investment issue, uh, for the foreseeable future or for the rest of our lives, uh, basically. Uh, and so, uh, he was really starting to point out the investment implications in a major way. Um, maybe a little, a little more, more than a decade ago. Maybe he was a little bit earlier than that, even. But that's when I remember it. A few years ago, you wrote a paper um, titled "An Investment Only a Mother Could Love: The Case for Natural Resource Equities." Um, and the main takeaways uh, were that natural resource equities provide diversification relative to the broad equity market. Um, and they protect against inflation, among other things. Um, does this still hold true um, today? Those those characteristics will come in very handy in the current climate. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we wrote, we we developed uh, all of those ideas and did a lot of that research, you know, more than a decade ago, uh, and started making the case. We wrote it up in a paper. I don't remember how many years ago, uh, but whatever it, it was, five, six, seven tw- years ago. Tw- 2016, uh, I think. 2016, yeah. Um, uh, it, it all holds true. The The thesis has, has been remarkably intact. And, and to your point, the thesis was resource equities give you diversification, uh, inflation protection. Uh, you might think that you would have to pay a premium for those things because obviously those are pretty uh, powerful, important things for your overall portfolio. But it turns out you can get um, resource equities at a discount uh, and and they trade at a discount because they're they're you know more volatile and people are scared of the commodity price uncertainty uh, and all those other things. But with a long term time frame, uh, you can wait those things out and and they haven't actually been more volatile than the broad equity market if you have if you look at longer term measures of risk and volatility. Uh, so 
And, and on top of all that, they're an inefficient uh, sector of the market where you can add a lot of value uh, with, with active stock selection. So it's a pretty compelling case uh, for an asset class. Jeremy said that it's the, the strongest case that he's ever heard, investment case that he's come across in his career, um, which he doesn't compliment me very often. So I, um, <laughs> I, I take them when I can get them. Take the wins. Um, does the thesis extend to renewables also? Yes. So uh, it's a little, the, the nice thing about looking at and studying and researching resource companies is you, you can look back for 100 years and you can look through all sorts of cycles, all sorts of different things happen. You can look through what happened during world wars, during D- Great Depression, uh, during all of the, when OPEC formed in the 70s. You have all these things you can study and research and think about. Uh, and when you look at uh, clean energy, uh, it's, it's a little bit different, right? We have, you know, I don't know, I guess maybe you could say 15 or 20 years of history, but really about 10 years uh, of history that you can look at. <clears throat> uh, so much less, and, and it's really been, you know, a very, a very short period of time with one certain set of circumstances that happened. There haven't been any, I guess now we've had COVID, we've had, um, we, we have, you know, Russia going to war with Ukraine, but uh, it's, it's not the same level. Uh, of, of research and study that you can do. And they're, they're a little bit different in terms of their, how they're priced because there is a more natural appetite for clean energy than there is for natural resources. Once again, natural resources uh, is, is probably, and this is the case we're making in that paper that you referenced, it's the most hated sector out there, right? Nobody wants to invest in the resources sector. Uh, there are lots of investors who want to invest in clean energy. It is a feel-good investment. Um, but you do get a lot of the same things. You get the diversification. Uh, and and you, you get that because when you're looking at the broad economy, or you're looking, I'm sorry, when you're looking at the broad equity market, the broad equity market, uh, generally speaking, is a reflection of what's going on with, you know, uh, broad uh, economic profit margins, what's going on with global GDP, uh, big, huge kind of things like that. And, and that's what's going to drive acqui returns, let's say. Um, well, the broad economy could be struggling or GDP growth could be flattish or, or barely growing. Uh, but if the world is rapidly transitioning to clean energy, there's no reason why a clean energy strategy couldn't do very, very well. Uh, and and likewise, the broad economy could be humming along no problem and, and firing on all cylinders. Uh, and if uh, Donald Trump comes to power in the United States and kills the clean power plan and pulls out of the Paris Agreement uh, and puts tariffs on Chinese solar panels and all sorts of other things, the, the clean energy sentiment could be pretty poor uh, for, for a period of time. And so you get that diversification but in a different way than you do uh, through a resources strategy. Uh, but part of uh, a big part of uh, investing in clean energy, in my opinion, is investing in the raw materials that are inputs uh, into clean energy. And so uh, you you look at uh, people kind of uh, can be dismissive of the resources sector because they say, "Oh well." Uh, we don't really like to invest in resources. We don't like to be involved in extractive industries. And we believe electric vehicles are going to take over and clean energy and displace fossil fuels. And it's like, okay, brilliant. But if you believe that, 
you have to believe there's going to be a, hu a tremendous, uh, unprecedented growth in demand for clean energy materials uh, like copper, lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, vanadium, uh, because clean energy solutions are just as reliant on natural resources uh, as fossil fuel-based solutions. It's just a different set of natural resources. Uh, and so uh, we, we, we think about all those things and, and incorporate that in um, our investments in clean energy. But of course, that also means that you get all the diversification benefits of those clean energy materials uh, in, in a, a clean energy portfolio, at least the way we would design one. I mean, that's a good point. People seem to assume that a transition to renewables is somehow a transition away from commodities and fossil fuels. Um, but really, you know, sun, sunlight and wind is captured by the things that are made of commodities, like you mentioned, nickel, lithium, um, copper. Um, and we're in the middle of a commodities bull market. So does that erode the thesis that renewables, um, at least in the current environment, are deflationary? Well, um, I've actually heard the opposite. So there are the detractors uh, for clean energy will say that uh, incorporating a high percentage of clean energy in your generation mix will be inflationary. Uh, and, and what's happened is year after year after year, the cost of wind and solar, of lithium ion batteries, of all these things has fallen. Um, the problem is the intermittency, right? If, if the wind always blue. If the sun always shined, we'd be all set. Uh, the problem is that those that's not the reality of the world that we live in. And so you have to not only look at the cost for the wind and the solar, but you have to look at the cost for some sort of baseload electricity generation. Uh, there are going to be grid integration costs, or you have to have uh, an energy storage solution, a utility scale energy storage solution, which to be honest, barely exists uh, at, at, at this point in time. So um, once you start incorporating those energy storage costs, those grid integration costs, the baseload costs, uh, all of a sudden renewables end up being uh, uh, fairly expensive. Now, will that be the case five years from now? And are you incorporating the costs uh, uh, of not addressing climate change when you do your analysis. Because if we keep burning fossil fuel, the costs uh, are, are extraordinary. So uh, to do a full cost-benefit analysis is obviously a super complicated uh, exercise, and it would all depend on what assumptions you were making. Uh, and you could believe me, you can make any point you want to make by fudging the numbers. Uh, but the reality is we don't have uh, the luxury. So I wouldn't say, I think what you're referring to uh, isn't so much that renewables are, are, or clean energy are deflationary. Uh, it's, it's more that uh, the costs have fallen and they've gotten to the point where they're becoming more and more economic. And now with the rising material costs, uh, does that impact the, the competitiveness uh, of, of kind of wind and solar if their costs aren't falling by 10, 20% each year, but, but they're actually going up a little bit. Uh, and the, the best uh, comeback I have for that uh, is look at fossil fuel prices, right? It's not like uh, coal, coal prices just went from like $50 to 300 plus uh, in the last couple of years. Natural gas prices are through the roof. Oil's up uh, at 100 to 120. Uh, so what clean energy solutions are competing with has just gotten much more expensive. Uh, and so if they've gotten uh, a little bit more expensive or their costs just haven't fallen as much as they typically have in recent years, uh, that's, that's not really that bad news. Um, but, but people get swayed by, um, 
you know, individual data points uh, at, at times. And uh, there are all sorts of people with, um, I don't know, hidden agendas, uh, let's say, who, who will make, you know, skew the numbers or the data in certain ways to make things look better or worse uh, than it really is. That, that kind of uh, not to brag, although I love to brag, uh, but not to brag, but like I, I think we're kind of in a, re- a relatively unique position at GMO and on my team because we're running a natural resources strategy and we're running a climate change strategy. And so we don't have uh, an embedded rooting interest. I mean, we have a rooting interest for the planet and we're uh, scared to death of climate change, uh, but we are looking at things pragmatically. Uh, and reasonably, and we're not horribly biased in in one way or another. Uh, we realize you can make a lot of money uh, in clean energy, and you can make a lot of money in fossil fuel companies, given where uh, they're priced right now. I mean, that's that's a good point. Our, our global energy infrastructure is still so um, dependent on um, fossil fuels. How important um, is are these legacy energy production um, forms as as we move towards um, a green? Green future, or put another way, um, what's the current state of play in terms of the the shortfall for that that baseload energy um, requirement that we have? Yeah, you know there there are so many. You know, this is kind of what I was referring to a couple of minutes ago. You, you read the headlines, you listen to people who are passionate uh, about climate, uh, and you end up with a very skewed view of the world. Um, if you, if you look at the data, uh, last year in the United States, something like 97% of the vehicles that were sold were internal combustion engine vehicles uh, or, or hybrids or whatever, but they had internal combustion engines. Uh, and I think the stat uh, worldwide was something like 94 to 95%. Uh, when you put a vehicle out on the streets, it's going to drive around for 15 years or so, 12, 13, 14, 15 years. So, and we've just put more vehicles on the road in the last five years, uh, you know, just to put it into context, we probably put uh, two to three times as many vehicles on the road, the internal combustion engine vehicles on the road in the last five years than we would have in the, the comparable p- five-year period uh, two or three decades ago. So uh, we just put a lot of gas-guzzling machines out on the street. Uh, and guess what? We're not going to go from 95, 96, 97% uh, internal combustion engine vehicles uh, to zero in the next five years. So we're going to be putting a lot more gas guzzling vehicles on the road. So how critical are fossil fuel-based solutions uh, to the functioning of the world? Absolutely critical. Like you you just, it would be mass chaos if you were to shut off the taps on fossil fuels. And and if anyone had any illusions otherwise, uh, just look at what's happened uh, since Russia invaded Ukraine, right? Russia's 11% of the world's oil big uh, producer of coal and natural gas, oil prices have gone through the roof. Natural gas prices have gone through the roof. Coal prices have gone through the roof. If prices are going through the roof, that is telling you that there's something that's absolutely critical for the functioning of the global economy, uh, and people will pay what they have to pay to get access to it. If it was a luxury, the, the price wouldn't go up. It would, it would be uh, a, a very elastic demand, but there's not elastic demand. It's a very inelastic demand curve uh, for, for these uh, fossil fuels for obvious reasons. We want to eat. We want to uh, you know, take a hot shower. We want to cook our food. Uh, and you're not doing that in, in most parts of the world without fossil fuels. Does the world have just the quantity of commodities um, 
to make this transition to renewables. Um, you you mentioned um, EVs just before. I saw some projection that um, Tesla um, expects to use up the majority of the world's um, nickel, I think, in, in 10 years' time to build their cars, um, let alone all the other companies that have to build cars. Um, are we digging up enough of this stuff out of the ground? Oh, we aren't right now. I mean, th- those those clean energy uh, material markets, so once again, copper, nickel, lithium, uh, pretty much across the board, uh, you, you see structural deficits in the years to come. Uh, and, and there's always more of this stuff out there. When you're talking about natural resources, you tend to talk about um, there's a distinction between reserves and resources. Reserves are what's economically viable at today's prices. Uh, resources are what's out there. And obviously, resources always dwarfs reserves uh, definitionally. Uh, so there's more of this stuff out there. Uh, but what's going to incentivize these producers to produce it? Higher prices. So uh, copper is not, you know, copper is at, a, I don't know, somewhere around $4.50 or so uh, a pound right now. Uh, copper's not going back down to, to 250 or, or 275 a pound like it was uh, for a few years leading up to, to the COVID, uh, uh, the introduction of the world to COVID, right? It's not going back there. Uh, if we need to electrify the world, overhaul our electric grids, build electric vehicles, build electric vehicle charging infrastructure, install wind and solar projects, which are much more copper intensive uh, than the comparable natural gas and coal power plants that we've historically used, uh, we need a lot more copper. And the only way to get that copper is to have higher prices to incentivize production. Uh, so there's a lot of this stuff out there. Uh, not a lot of this stuff out there at today's prices, which unfortunately probably means inflationary pressures on on various uh, materials. Talking about plugging that that shortfall, let's talk about nuclear and gas power. Um, they seem to occupy uh, a no man's land um, of sorts between renewables and fossil fuels. How do you think about nuclear and gas? Uh so nuclear is an interesting, well, they're both interesting. Uh, nuclear is a little more nuanced because uh, the technology has existed for decades uh, to move to smaller, safer, more modular nuclear reactors uh, with uh, much more uh, controllable costs versus the big monolithic uh, nuclear reactors that we're used to thinking of and that have uh, led to all the high-profile uh, meltdowns and disasters that the world has seen. Uh, so a typical nuclear reactor is you start a reaction, you build a reactor to control that reaction, and then you have a backup system uh, to kick in in case your main reactor goes down. Uh, well, that's brilliant until a tidal wave comes and, and hits you uh, in, in Fukushima uh, and knocks down your reactor and takes out your backup system and you have a meltdown. Uh, the Once again, the technology and the know-how has existed for decades, since the 60s or 70s, to build smaller reactors where not only do you not have to worry about that, but you have to actually keep adding to the reaction. It's not about building a reactor to control the reaction. You start a reaction, unless you keep feeding that reaction, uh, the reaction will die down uh, naturally. And so in the event of a disaster, you just stop feeding the reaction, uh, the reaction uh, automatically dies down. So there have been safe uh, uh, more modular, more scalable uh, versions of nuclear uh, for, for decades. The problem is it's political dynamite. Uh, especially all especially do, when you have a war in Ukraine with Russians exactly. attacking power and, plants. And, exactly. And, and it's interesting because here, 
it, with with the situation in Ukraine, you have both uh, nuclear proponents and uh, nuclear skeptics uh, taking data points away from it. Right, the nuclear skeptics say, "See, look what happens when you have nuclear. We, we, you know, you could have had a, a, another meltdown on your hands." Uh, in Ukraine because of the irresponsible, uh, uh, whatever, uh, behavior of some of the Russian soldiers at that facility. And then the proponents say, well, we've got to get off of Russian uh, fossil fuels. Uh, And the only way we can get off of Russian fossil fuels is by building nuclear. Uh, So you've seen both uh, uh, parties claiming victory uh, over the last couple months, uh, if you will. But but it's it's, it's a very tricky, difficult political uh, issue. And in most parts of the world, uh, all you have to do to lose an election is run on a pro-nuclear platform and have your opponent say, this guy wants to kill your children uh, and uh, you know all the fish are going to have three eyeballs and, and everything else. And all of a sudden, uh, you're, you're out on the street and your opponent won uh, the election. So it's, it's a dangerous platform to run on. Uh, and and you know, the average person in the public has absolutely no idea uh, what opinion to have of, of that sort of thing. Uh, natural gas uh, is a little bit different. Natural gas, uh, obviously, uh, much safer, at least in, uh, uh, in terms of like huge meltdowns and, and things like that. Um, it, it isn't great from a climate perspective. People talk about it as a transition technology uh, because it's cleaner than coal. But it's not like it's uh, 10% of the carbon emissions of coal or 5% of the carbon emissions of coal. It's like 50% uh, or, or something in, in that ballpark. So coal's horrible. And natural gas is just really bad. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, once again, there are a lot of people on Earth. Uh, that's a lot of people to feed. That's a lot of people uh, who need heat, you know, heat in their homes and hot water and everything else. And, and it's, not entire, it's not clear at all how you service that in the short term uh, without using tremendous amounts of natural gas. So I think natural gas is a transition fuel, um, but it shouldn't be what we aspire to as a long-term solution. Uh, our long-term, long-term solutions have to be cleaner than that. You mentioned the messaging challenge um, um, around nuclear power. Um, it seems there's, there's a similar messaging challenge around renewables. How, how damaging is it when um, a former president, um, you know, talks about, you know, the birds that die from 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 solar wind generation uh, from from wind generation turbines. I mean, does that does that move the needle um, in terms of broad public perception of renewable energy? I, I mean, it doesn't help. I mean, it's amazing uh, as human beings. There is literally nothing uh, that you you can't find pro people who are for and against and believe uh, with all their heart. Uh, there there is no magical solution out there. That's the problem. Is Every single thing we do in clean energy also has negatives. Uh, And so uh, people who want to focus on those negatives, uh, whether they have an agenda or they're just not thinking through the entire issue, uh, can point out that uh, uh, what are you going to do with the old solar panels? Uh, You have this kind of uh, nasty, poisonous material. What are you going to do with all those solar panels? What are you going to do with the wind turbines? The wind turbines are killing birds, uh, blah, blah, blah. What are you going to do? The alternative is the planet heats up and there are no birds, right? So uh, it, it doesn't really matter. So do you kill a few birds uh, or do you kill all of them? You know, it's better to kill a few than all of them. I think we can we, we can agree on that. Uh, but yeah, all of that, 
all of that negative talk about clean energy, which once again, there's, there's truth to all of it, uh, but all of that negative talk uh, distracts people from the main issue and, and from, from what we should really be pursuing uh, in, in order to uh, you know, tackle what's effectively an existential threat for the world as we know it. Uh, so it, it isn't helpful uh, and it is harmful, but uh, it hasn't, if you've noticed, it hasn't stopped uh, global politicians from targeting decarbonization. They realize, uh, hey, you know, there are going to be some negatives to all of these things, but big pic- we have to focus on the big picture uh, and, and making reasonable trade-offs. And, and the reasonable trade-off is kill a few birds uh, to save the world. I think uh, we would all, uh, well, any reasonable person would choose to kill a few birds, uh, even though we, we don't necessarily want to. Yeah, well, the States isn't alone. A few years ago, we had a politician bring a lump of coal, a pro, a pro coal politician bring a lump of coal into our lower house to, uh, to prove a point, which was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so moving on to GMO's climate change strategy, um, what are its main tenants and how, how do they feed into your filtering process? Uh, well, we really... The, the climate change strategies I mentioned earlier evolved out of our natural resources strategy. Um, and the, the real intent at a very high level is identify companies that are going to benefit uh, from efforts to combat climate change. We see all these different industries, whether you're talking about the automobile industry uh, or the transportation industry more generally, steel making, uh, electricity generation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. All of these industries are going to see transformational change in the decades to come. Uh, and so the idea was let's build a strategy to get out ahead of these trends uh, and, and to invest in companies that are going to benefit uh, from, from these, these huge growth uh, trajectories that we would expect to see. Uh, and so we, we group companies into either being involved in helping the world to mitigate climate change. So that would be kind of clean energy, batteries and storage, energy efficiency efforts, uh, clean energy materials, uh, any sort of energy efficiency effort. Energy efficiency isn't as exciting uh, as the other stuff, but if you can use 30 40% less energy and accomplish the same unit of work, that's absolutely brilliant in terms of combating climate change. Uh, and there should be a huge emphasis on that going forward. Um, so th- all those kinds of things. But then we also focus on companies involved in helping the world to adapt to climate change. Uh, so the two big things there are food and water. Uh, so companies focused on um, keeping agricultural productivity as high as possible in the face of climate change would be within scope. Uh, if you go talk to farmers, uh, farmers generally don't uh, sit there and say, oh, you know what? Farming used to be really easy. Uh, it's starting to get kind of difficult uh, today. No, it was always a difficult game. And now you're giving them uh, droughts that in many cases last for years or decades at a time, floods extreme temperature events, which are death for crops, uh, extreme downpours, which wash away your soil and your soil nutrients. And if you're a farmer, your soil is your livelihood. Uh, So companies focused on keeping agricultural productivity as high as possible in the face uh, of of these climate uh, risks and and threats uh, are within scope. Uh, And similarly, uh, for water, the availability of fresh water uh, is is kind of a challenge that we would have had anyways. You know, we have seven and a half going on eight billion people on Earth. Freshwater is is finite in supply. Uh, there there's uh, a lot of it, but not an infinite amount of it. Uh, and now all of a sudden, 
uh, you're you're adding once again a very um, disparate patterns uh, of water distribution uh, to the world. You know, you're having areas that used to get plenty of rainfall going through uh, multi-decade droughts. I know in California, you guys had record wildfires. We've had record wildfires in California. Uh, you have other areas of the world which are too wet, right? We've had record flooding of the Mississippi in the last uh, two or three years in the United States and other areas that have a lot more water uh, than they're used to dealing with. Uh, so uh, companies focused on providing access to fresh water that could be purification of water, treatment of water, desalination, uh, efficient use of water resources, uh, companies focused on recycling uh, efforts, anything like that would be within scope as well. Uh, so we basically designed a strategy uh, to focus on companies that will benefit from efforts to deal with climate change. Uh, and we're very careful about the kinds of companies that we invest in uh, and the prices that we're willing to pay. Um, uh, in other words, uh, there are going to be periods of time where solar companies are going to be uh, expensive or electric vehicle companies or wind companies. Uh, we need to have a broad enough opportunity set where uh, we can still find high expected returns even when some areas of the market are frothy. Uh, so that value orientation comes in handy and is certainly uh, played to our benefit in the last couple of years where, where clean energies had a little bit of a setback. Does the strategy uh, invest directly in um, the precious metals that go towards um, these renewable technologies or do you stick to equities? We stick to equities. It turns out that historically uh, investing in the commodities themselves has been a very poor place to be. Um, uh, just to, to look at it in a very, very long-term time frame, uh, the average industrial metal, uh, if you look at iron ore, copper, lead, nickel, zinc, whatever, uh, has been more or less flat in real terms over the last hundred years. Uh, yet mining companies have delivered something like nine and a half percent real per annum for the last hundred years, which, by the way, is much higher uh, than the broad equity market has uh, delivered, which, which gets to the fact that these companies are unloved and, and typically traded a discount to, to fair value. Um, but that's a, a pretty big gap, right? Zero percent real to, to 9.5% real. So the companies, there's a risk premium associated with investing in them. You wouldn't invest in a company unless you expected to get a return in the form of growth and earnings and dividends and share repurchases uh, and all that good stuff. Whereas a commodity will only go up based on the supply and demand. There is no risk premium associated with it. You just have to hope you're right uh, and that supply demand goes in your favor. So uh, for anybody interested in investing in the commodities that underlie the clean energy transition, I strongly recommend that you invest in the companies that produce those commodities as opposed to direct investment in the commodities themselves. How flexible is is the mandate of the strategy? Um, when you have companies that that do invest in these these new technologies, so-called new school companies, but that also have elements of of legacy um, legacy technology um, or ways of doing business that might be har harmful to the environment and detract. Uh, you know, it, to us, it comes down to materiality, and so if you're looking at um, Royal Dutch Shell, uh, where they have a sizable clean energy business. If, if it were a standalone company, it would be a key player, you know, like it would be a significant player uh, in, in kind of clean energy markets. Uh, but it's embedded in this huge uh, fossil fuel oriented beast. 
Uh, so we're not going to look at Royal Dutch Shell, or I don't look at Royal Dutch Shell and say, hey, that's a clean energy company just because they have some valuable clean energy assets. I look at it for what it is. It's, it's an oil and gas company with a little bit of clean energy on the side. Uh, if Royal Dutch Shell gets, I guess now it's just Shell, uh, if Shell gets to the point where uh, you know, it's 50% of their business or, or 40% and growing uh, part of their business, their clean energy efforts, uh, then maybe you can start having that conversation. Generally speaking, you don't find companies that are really close to that that middle ground, right? You tend to find mm-hmm. uh, really clean companies or you find fossil fuel companies that have a little tiny uh, or, or fairly small clean energy effort that makes them kind of more palatable to shareholders and, and whatever, but isn't really a driving factor in their profitability. Um, and how's the strategy performed over the past past few years through COVID um, and then also before that in more regular, re- more regular times? Um, so the climate strategy is outperformed by, I don't know, five to six percent uh, per year since we launched in 2017. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's going to provide diversification to your overall portfolio because it's not going to perform like Acqui. Uh, so those returns have been lumpy. Uh, if your comparison point is the broad equity market. Uh, Of course, that's brilliant for your overall portfolio, but it just means you're getting returns at different times. Uh, In COVID, you saw the COVID market event, you saw the uh, both sides of it, right? Uh, So when the market uh, initially drew down uh, in, what was that, February, March, uh, April of of 2020, uh, the clean energy stuff got slaughtered. I think we went from our strategy went from being up by two uh, percent at the end of January or something like that to being down by ten percent by the end of March. So uh, in two quick months, we went from up two to down ten, uh, and then by the end of the year, uh, we had outperformed by something like thirty percent. Uh, so uh, it, we got whipped around uh, a, a fair bit uh, during during two thousand twenty, uh, and then in two thousand twenty one. Uh, we were able to navigate what was a difficult year for clean energy because clean energy had a brilliant year in 2020. You had solar companies up 200 to 250%, wind companies up 100%, lithium companies up 100%, copper companies up 60%, 70%. So these companies did incredibly well in 2020. And then in 2021, they gave back uh, some of those gains. I think the Wilder Hill Clean Energy Index was down uh, about 35%, 30 35% in 2021. Uh, and and we, we did much better than that. We were up, um, I don't know, maybe 12% or something like that last year. So our performance has been good uh, and, and strong, uh, but, you know, it is, it is a highly volatile strategy. You know, it's not for the faint of heart. You know, don't, don't invest in uh, a climate strategy as your core uh, equity position. If you have trouble sleeping at night, you have to be able to uh, go with the flows and ride the ups and downs. Uh, in clean energy and hope that, uh, which I believe it will be the case, but hope that uh, the end point is much higher than the starting point. Just finally, Lucas, um, rules of investing have a couple of um, common questions we ask our guests at the end of the podcast. Um, We have three questions. Uh, Number one, um, what book has been most influential um, on your investment philosophy? Oh, geez. Uh, I don't have a great answer for that. The most enjoyable, uh, I'm not sure that it dramatically impacted my investment philosophy, but there's a book called Fortune's Formula that gets into Kelly betting and 
and uh, how you can apply Kelly betting to uh, betting on horse races and into investing in financial markets and other applications like that. Uh, and it's a fascinating read and really interesting. Um, so I, I sorry, sorry, that. Kelly, Kelly, Kelly betting. It's an optimal betting strategy. Okay. Uh, okay. Kind of mathematically provable that it's the optimal betting strategy, and what it effectively means is, it, let's say you're betting on a horse race, uh, you shouldn't just figure out who your favorite is uh, and bet on your favorite because eventually you'll run out of money with enough uh, races because you'll bet on your favorite, he'll lose, you'll bet, you, and you'll eventually run out of capital. What Kelly betting says is, if you have an edge, bet on all the horses in the race in proportion. Uh, and maybe I'm bastardizing Kelly betting, uh, but you can go read the book and, and tell me how close I got. Uh, but you, you, and it was about 15 years ago that I read it. But uh, you bet in proportion to uh, your assessment of the odds. And if you have an edge, you'll never run out of money because you're going to win every race. You've bet on all the horses. Uh, and if if uh, the favorite comes in, you don't win as much money. But if a long shot comes in, you win a lot of money. So you, you can get close to running out of money, but you can never run out of money. Uh, and you'll optimize your capital in the long run. So um, I don't know. It's interesting. It gets into people who have applied that uh, type of thing to financial markets successfully and made a lot of money doing it and uh, blah, blah, blah. So uh, I, I thought it was an interesting book. Good stuff. It's on the list. Um, question two, could you tell us about your biggest gain or loss? Um, what were the most valuable lessons you learned from the experience? Well, of course, I'm going to tell you about my biggest gain because it makes me sound better. Um, <laughs> uh, but one of, one of the, uh, I'll, I'll kind of, I'll kind of give uh, some lessons I learned from it because we, we definitely learned some lessons uh, along the way. But Solar Edge uh, is a company that uh, doesn't produce wind, I'm sorry, solar panels, but uh, produces um, solar inverters and optimization uh, uh, technology that helps get you mo get more electricity out of the same solar uh, array, right? So you have two solar arrays, different inverter technology, you get more uh, out of, of an array with, with uh, Solar Edge's technology uh, deployed on it. Uh, well, Solar Edge was a company that we started buying when it was, I don't know, 11, 12, 13, $14, something like that. It was trading at below $11, 11 times earnings. <clears throat> and we looked at it and we said, hey, they have a differentiated technology. It's superior. They're growing market share. They have no debt on their books. They have a cash uh, pool that they can use to either make strategic acquisitions or return it to shareholders or invest in growth. Everything looked great. Uh, and we did make a big bet on it, uh, but it, it's now, you know, in the 300. So it's gone up, you know, it's not, it's not a 10 bagger. It's, you know, whatever, a 25 or 30 bagger or whatever it's been. Uh, and uh, what lessons did we learn from it? The biggest lesson we learned from it uh, was other than regretting that we didn't bet bigger on it uh, initially, of course, uh, was we trimmed it uh, prematurely multiple times. And we did that because we were doing what made uh, what, what kind of makes sense, which is if you model out a solar company that's trading at below 11 times earnings and you come up with 300% upside, what do you assume? You assume you screwed something up in your model uh, and that you're making unreasonable assumptions, right? So you change things and you put in very conservative assumptions. They're not really what your base case is. They're, they're very conservative assumptions. And you say, hey, even with these conservative assumptions, this stock still has 100% upside or whatever you think it has. Um, then it goes up 100%. You start trimming. 
right? And and you 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 start selling your position, uh, and you go in and you're like, oh, but actually now that we revisit the assumptions, some of these aren't really what we believe anymore. We we were just putting in those assumptions a couple of years ago. Let's revisit them. And you put in more realistic assumptions, mm-hmm. and now you're like, oh, well, there's like. 200% upside in this thing. Uh, but we just sold half of our position or three quarters of our position. like Because so, of assumptions you made at the very beginning. Exactly. That so, weren't updated. It, exactly. It's it's about, well, it, yeah, there, there are really two things there. One is uh, two lessons that you could learn from that or that we've learned from that. Uh, one is don't put in conservative assumptions in your models. It might make sense. It might make sense in terms of your buy discipline, but it screws up your sell discipline. Uh, so put in the most realistic assumptions that you can, and if they're kind of wacky numbers that seem too good to believe, uh, you know, just live with it, right? It, it's better to have realistic assumptions and something that you believe in in your models. Uh, the other thing that that I think we learned is, yeah, before you go and make uh, a, a big trade, revisit your models. Now, modeling out financial companies is a complicated endeavor, right? These aren't trivial things to update to revisit all the assumptions. It's very time consuming. Uh, it, it's labor intensive, but it's worth it. Uh, and and so we're we're much more careful now uh, about selling out of positions that are performing very well. So that was, I think, the uh, definition of a humble brag. Um, <laughs> no, it was really good, very good. Um, and finally, question three: If markets, oh, and actually, I should preface by saying we don't recommend anyone actually do this, but. Nonetheless, if markets were going to close for the next five years starting tomorrow uh, and you could only own one share in one company, what would it be? Uh, The first name that pops into my mind. So all markets are closed. Mm -hmm. Not yet if they were going to close tomorrow for the next five years. Um, God, there are a few candidates uh, that I have. I'll just throw out LG Chem uh, as as one example. Uh, so LG Chem um, produces lots of lithium ion batteries, uh, but they do other things. They have a small pharmaceutical business. They do TVs and consumer electronics and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but they listed uh, their uh, lithium ion business separately uh, a few months ago. And they kept 80% of it, so they own 80% of the shares of it. Uh, and if you look at their value of their stake in LG Energy, I think it's LG Energy or LG Energy something. Uh, but if you look at their stake in this LG Energy that they've listed separately, their lithium-ion battery unit, uh, LG Chem's stake alone is worth twice the market cap of LG Chem. And then, of course, their legacy business is worth... Uh, a substantive amount uh, as well. So you have this, you know, people talk about efficient uh, equity markets. Someone explained that one to me. I don't get it. Uh, We've asked around. No one seems to get it. Uh, Yet it exists, this huge dislocation where uh, they have a stake uh, in another company that's worth 2x uh, their current market cap and there's real value uh, in the rest of their business as well. Uh, So that one seems like a safe bet that no matter what happens in the world for the next five years, uh, you'll probably will probably need lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles, uh, and and that um, would probably that that stake in LG, in that lithium-ion battery business uh, will probably um, protect LG Chem's valuation and and presumably grow it substantively. Okay, so you're betting the house on an enigma. Yes. 
Well, I would say inefficiency. I mean, that once again, follow up with me after this if you can figure out why why those things are priced that way because I don't get it. We will. We will for sure. Well, Lucas, that's been great. I've loved having you on Rules of Investing. We'll have to get you back on the podcast soon. Thank you. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. That's the end of the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to head over to livewiremarkets.com where we'll be running a series on decarbonisation over the next couple of weeks with exclusive articles and video interviews from a host of leading experts. 